Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. You'll find it on page 225 in the Black Pew Bible. Chapter 1 is the story of how Samuel came to be. Samuel, the prophet of God, as I mentioned, the judge of God's people, the counselor to the first kings of Israel. The important person in the history of redemption. This chapter is also the story of a devout but divided husband and a mean and merciless mother and a godly but grieving wife and a mistaken priest but a merciful God. Let me invite you to hear 1 Samuel chapter 1 from the word of God. Give your attention to it. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Amen. This is God's word. May he teach it to us. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hannah was a woman in distress, and her distress is like a one-woman illustration of the distress of the whole nation of Israel. Why do I say that? Well, the times leading up to Samuel, around 1100 B.C., were terrible times in the nation. There was a lot of darkness in the people and in the nation, and they were oppressed by their neighbors. And, and God, it seemed, was absent and silent in their distress. And things were degenerating badly. The book of Judges ends its very last line, which is the book that immediately precedes the time of Samuel. It ends by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, that love for God had grown cold uh, among the people. And people looked after themselves, but they certainly didn't look out for others. But God did see the needs of the people. And what did he do? He raised up for them a godly leader in Israel to turn the tide. 
And Samuel, as we'll see over the course of his life, stands as a figure like John the Baptist does. You remember John the Baptist stands between the Old and the New Testament. Samuel stands between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. And as John the Baptist helped usher in the king of kings, so Samuel helped usher in a king A man after God's own heart. So he's an enormously important person in the history of God's plan of redemption. And uh, here we see uh, how he came to be. And I want to highlight three things from the passage with you this morning. As we think about his mother and ourselves. I want you to think about first, from verses 1 to 8, the ache God's people may feel. The ache... God's people may feel. We meet Elkanah and Hannah, his first wife. Elkanah is a devout but divided husband. He's an important man in Israel. You see that by the listing of his ancestors. He's a man of some wealth as well. You would need that to support two wives. And he's also a godly man. He attends the appointed religious feasts in Shiloh. He brings his offerings. He makes his vow. He's careful to keep them. He worships the Lord. Now, this is long before Jerusalem became the base of the temple. At this point, the tabernacle was in in Shiloh. So he's gone to the main place of worship. Elkanah, I said, is godly yet flawed. That's very obvious. He has two wives. Now, appreciate that... In the context of the Old Testament, he's not alone in that. Other men had taken more than one, some of them wicked men, to be sure, but others godly. Think of Abraham. Though, okay, he didn't actually marry the handmaiden. He essentially had two. Think of Jacob with Leah and Rachel. God permitted polygamy at certain times Though God never approved of polygamy, he allowed it. His word made laws to regulate it. His word in Deuteronomy makes laws to regulate the care of multiple wives. But like with divorce, it was not his intention from the beginning. It's not his plan and design for marriage. As Jesus makes that clear in the New Testament when he says it was not so from the beginning. He's thinking of God making Eve for Adam. But rather, it was out of the hardness of men's hearts that God allowed things like polygamy to continue. And as you know, if you've read the story of the polygamists, it always involves great grief. In every case. Well, Hannah, here she is. She has a husband who takes care of her. A husband, it says, who loves her. A husband who gives her a double portion. He's sensitive in some ways. But whose time and attention and affection are certainly divided. And on top of that distress, Hannah is barren. She has no children. And this was a source of great pain to her. She wanted children, but it says emphatically that the Lord had closed her womb. There's no fault on her part here. God in his wisdom and plan and purposes had simply closed 
her womb. There are others like her across your Bible. You think of Sarah, perhaps, childless until very late in life. And think of the grief that was to her. You think of Rebecca. Rebecca was married some 20 years before she had children. Very unusual. Or think of Mrs. Manoah. Uh, whose first name is not told to us, but she was barren and had no children. And an angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and you have no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And that son is Samson. And think of the godly Elizabeth, who as one put it, was probably already drawing her social security check when she finally and miraculously had a child, John the Baptist. So Hannah is among the women of the Bible some have called the fellowship of the bearing. And this was a source of great grief. And she doesn't know what we know, that the Lord is going to intervene. And then to top it off, think of her distress, Elkanah has married another girl, probably younger, probably so that he can have descendants, which was important to an Israelite. And she's clearly a fertile myrtle. Uh, It probably felt like every time he looks in her direction, out pops another kid. Many sons and daughters, it suggests. And Penina, this second wife, is an ugly woman. She loves to rub it in. You can imagine the conversations as they, as they, and we don't know whether they lived in the same house or he had separate homes for them, but they all gathered at the feasts together. You can imagine seated at that table. And one of Penina's kids says, uh, Mom, you know, why does Aunt Hannah not have any children? Doesn't she want them? Oh, well, why don't you ask her? Don't you want children? You can imagine it being said. And perhaps Panana is saying, you know, maybe God has cursed her. Do you think God has cursed you? Hannah? And so here's Hannah. She is among the godliest women across the whole of Scripture, arguably second to Mary, and a woman who is in great distress and showing signs of what we would call depression she's not eating she's weeping she's sick at heart and and why not she's human after all godly people aren't unfeeling people and Elkanah verse 8 comes to her and says Hannah why do you eat why do you not eat why is your heart sad And in what has to be one of the most boneheaded things to be said by a husband to his wife, says, am I not more to you than ten sons? Please do not embrace the logic that says a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. And she ought to be happy that she's got one guy around. This guy's a dunce. And so what do you see in this first part? What do you see in verses eight, 1 to 8? What do you see? You see the ache that God's people may feel. And yet the ache may be just where God would have us at that moment in time. Uh, he, he, that is God, frequently begins his great works 
in the face of human hopelessness, when there's nothing we can do, then he shows up. When we're totally desperate, when we're overwhelmed, when we're unable to do anything to help ourselves or fix our circumstances or, or make things better, it's sometimes that just at that point that God shows up, that he begins to do his work. Think of those key people in redemptive history like Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist all coming when it was totally unexpected and no human could have brought it about. You who are struggling, what, whatever your heartache, isn't that at least encouraging that the Lord so often begins his work when we're stuck and we got nowhere else to turn? That may not take away your pain, but it can sustain you with hope. And that's the first thing I want you to see then. Now the second is, in verses 9 through 20, I want you to see the freedom God's people enjoy. The freedom God's people enjoy. What does Hannah do? She casts herself on the Lord for mercy. She pours out her heart to him. They're, they're eating there. They're, they're sharing the peace offering. What's been done is that a portion of the peace offering has gone to feed the priests. A portion of it was burned up, but a portion of it is returned to the family so that they can have a joyful celebration together and, and eat. And Elkanah, because he loves her, gives her a double portion. Then he makes that boneheaded remark, and on top of the, the taunts of her rival, so to speak, it's also overwhelming Where can she turn? Where can she go? She gets up and perhaps we can imagine her running to the temple to throw herself down in deep distress and to pray to the Lord and to weep bitterly before the Lord. Verse 11, she vowed a vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, what will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What's she doing? She's praying. She's asking for a son. She's making a vow. It's a Nazarite vow. You'll find it in Numbers chapter 6. This is the vow where he will be dedicated to the Lord. Normally it was for a specific period of time. Very unusual that it should be for a lifetime. No razor will touch the head. No wine or strong drink will be drunk. He will be dedicated to the Lord. As she says in her prayer, Lord, give me a son and I will give him back to you. And so what is she doing? She's casting her cares upon the Lord. She's, don't misunderstand, she's got nothing here to offer the Lord uh, to get him to do what she wants. This is not bargaining, it's not manipulative. Uh, she doesn't think she can twist the arm of the Almighty here. She, she's not doing that. She, but, but if God does answer her prayer, she's simply saying, I'll give back to you what it is that you in fact freely and graciously have given to me. And when she speaks to him, she addresses him as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the the cosmic ruler. And as Ralph Davis says, assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. She just assumes she matters to him. 
Do you see how free she is with the Lord? Where did she get such boldness and freedom? Well, may I suggest verse 11, you see this language, look on my affliction, remember me and forget not your servant. She seems to be there quoting Exodus chapter 3 and the history of Israel when God remembered the affliction of his people. And she's citing that, I think. And she's saying, Lord, you are the God who remembers the affliction of your people. I know that you care. Won't you remember me in my affliction too? She's ahead of the psalmist, David, when in Psalm 142, he prays, With my voice I cry to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble. Now, here she is, freely casting her cares upon the Lord. And Eli, the priest, thinks she's drunk. He mistakes her earnestness for drunkenness. He sees her mouth moving and hears no words. And maybe he's so unfamiliar with actually seeing people pray in such a time of wickedness. He assumes the worst about her and not the best. Nothing loving here. He doesn't recognize it, seems prayer when he sees it. He basically wants to kick her out. You know, lay off the wine and come back when you're sober. It's hard to say whether Penina or Eli comes across as the bigger jerk. In the story, it may just be the clergyman here. But she rebukes him with the truth, not in an arrogant or unkind way. But Hannah, verse 15, says, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now look, consider her relationship with the Lord and its freedom. There's kind of a myth that goes around that Old Testament believers had a, a, a formal relationship with the Lord. You know, where you, you, you engaged in sacrifices. You had to get all those details right. And certainly when you did them, you, you, you needed to. But that the relationship was formal, it involved sacrifices, it involved duty, it involved obedience, and it was kind of ritualistic and not intimate. It was, it was mechanical and not relational, and that's just hogwash, right? This dear woman has freedom to just speak her mind to her heavenly father, though she had not read Hebrews chapter 4 at the time, though I assume she's seen it now in the halls of heaven. The freedom of Hebrews chapter 4, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who is able to sympathize with us. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. We are about to sing a, a song that's new for us here at Redeemer. Notice the words in your bulletin. We need songs like this, songs for sorrow, songs for sighing. Not just songs of celebration and joy or asking for forgiveness or assurance that we are, but songs that express the whole range of human emotion and experience and, and hear and steal the godly Baptist hymn writer, perhaps the most prolific and uh, best of the Baptist hymn writers who suffered grievously, and you can read about her on the back of your 
worship guide. She wrote these words. Just look at the first couple stanzas. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. May we sing that in belief. However doubting, however hurting, however needy. And now I want you to see one last thing uh, in the passage before us. In uh, 18 and following, you have sort of the conclusion to the story. And what we see here that I want to highlight is the service God's people embrace. It's uh, a story that began as the story of a barren woman. And a woman made bitter in spirit. And it becomes the story of a blessed woman, to be sure. Eli the high priest says, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. She took the high priest's blessing at his word. She believed God would do as the high priest prayed. I think that's what we should understand her doing because her tears stopped. And she got up and she went her way and she ate and her face was no longer sad. She let her request be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding guarded her heart and her mind. And God, what did he do? He relieved her burden. He lifted her countenance and he remembered her petition. Elkanah knew his wife, it says. They were intimate. The Lord remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, saying, I have asked for him from the Lord. It's a play on his name. Maybe three or four years later, depending upon at what time she weaned the child, she goes to Shiloh, she fulfills her vow. And some of us are scratching our heads as we consider what it is that she does. And we ask the question, how could a mother do that? How could a mother take her three or four year old from her home to a temple and leave him to be raised in the temple by Eli, at the very least a mistaken priest, and his two wicked sons, which will become very clear, and they've already been mentioned. How could she do this? We can't imagine doing this. You couldn't imagine dropping your kids at, at this church building to live here in this facility. And I get that, and we don't want you to do that. <laughs> this is one of those times, I think, when you're reading the Bible, and you need to know that the application is not, in every particular, go and do likewise. Don't take her whole story as an example for your story, though we'll come back to ways it is. What she's doing is she is fulfilling a vow that she had made. That may be difficult to understand in the 21st century where we take our words and we just speak them into the air. 
with never a thought to fulfilling our promises, but she took her vow seriously as she ought. And so in due time, having weaned her, she takes him to the temple. Samuel is a boy in the line of the Levites. That's his family history. That, that's, that means he's going to be raised for the priesthood and the service among God's people in the temple. But most of all, I think what Hannah wanted for her son was for him to be a godly man. For him to be God's man. For him to serve the Lord from his earliest days. She may have brought him to live under the oversight of Eli, but she brought him to be near to the heavenly father in the temple where he said, I will meet with my people. May that be what we want for our children, for all of them to know and to enjoy and to honor the Lord all their days. Liam Gallagher, he's the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's the successor to Phil Riken, who's now the president of Wheaton, James Montgomery Boyce, and Donald Gray Barnhouse, among others, at that historic church. Greg and I had a chance uh, to sit at a table uh, at lunch with him at the General Assembly. Uh, and This is not where I hear, heard this story, but Liam is a minister there, and he has a good friend who's also a minister of the gospel, a friend he grew up with from infancy. And he tells the story that their mothers had been members together in a large church in Glasgow. They had sung together in the choir. As young Christians, they had sat together on the front row, and they had been known to giggle their way through parts of sermons and services. But as the two young women grew, they became more and more earnest about the Lord. They began to pray together as friends for one another. And Liam, the son of one, learned by the sister of the other woman that she remembers that these two young women prayed particularly about two things when they got together. First, they prayed that, as Liam puts it, the Lord would give them a man, uh, a Christian man, a Christian husband. That's a good prayer. And second, they prayed that they would have boys who would be ministers. And they asked, and they received, just as Hannah asked, and she received. And so Israel received in Samuel a godly leader. And before they had him, they had among them his godly mother. Like mother, like son. And I think the larger story is this. Faithful Hannah withheld not her own son, but gave him up to the Lord that he might serve him. As indeed our father in heaven withheld not his own son, but gave him up. For us all, that we might serve him like father, like daughter. Have you embraced the service of the Lord who died for all that we might live for him? May it be so. Let's pray.
our Father in heaven, you are good and gracious and generous and kind Father with a great plan for our everlasting happiness and a great reunion of all who belong to you and serve you because of Jesus. So grant that we might all know the joy of that and grant that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and generations for, for centuries to come might know and love and walk with you knowing the love of Christ for their soul. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.